Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, some of the economic data coming in uh, is starting to reflect uh, the impacts from the COVID-19. The Conference Board Consumer Confidence Index declined sharply in March following an increase in February. To help us walk through the numbers, we welcome Bart Van Ark. He's a chief economist at the Conference Board. Uh, Bart, thanks so much for joining us. What did the March data show? Well, at the, um, at the aggregate level of the overall consumer confidence index, of course, the index is showing a drop from 132.6 in February to 120 in March. That perhaps is not as huge a drop as you might expect, but it is important that when we look at the responses to this survey, most of these responses were still coming in in the sort of early half of March and with a, with a majority even in the first week of March. So this was before uh, the COVID uh, crisis was announced to be a global pandemic and the U.S. wasn't really strongly affected. However, if we look below, beyond the or below the uh, aggregate number, particularly on expectations, we saw already a very significant weakening from 108 to 88.2 in March. Uh, so that's a big decline. So even in early March, consumers were already getting very concerned about uh, the outlook, and obviously that will only have strengthened over the last few weeks. Well, this has been an unprecedented period on a lot of different levels, one of which is just the speed of which this has hit and changed the whole economic backdrop. So it sort of is is difficult to cling to some of the previous leading indicators. When you look at some of the indicators in real time, we saw the jobless claims uh, last week. We're expecting more data on that front. We've gotten regional Fed measures coming out, showing one dire picture after another. What's the most likely economic scenario that you see going forward? Oh, I think so. First of all, when we look at the index where it stands now, uh, I think we'll see significantly more declines happening over the next few weeks and months. Uh, even compared to the financial crisis, we're not yet at that low point. Uh, you know, at that time, the expectations index dropped at some point of 230, and we're still at 88. So there's still a very long way to go in terms of uh, declining confidence going forward. There are really a couple of scenarios now to your question, Lisa, on sort of where we're going. Really a couple of scenarios to think about now. One is indeed that we will We'll see this very deep contraction happening for at least another month, if not perhaps six weeks or two months, but then see a fairly strong V-bound kind of recovery. Most of the forecasts are still sort of working on that scenario that we will be able to begin to open up the economy again uh, over the summer. Uh, still leaves the question what will happen after the summer in the case of a resurgence of cases. But I have to say that I think it's actually more likely that, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the contraction may continue well into the third quarter. Um, it's very likely that, uh, you, know, co- you know, containment measures and social distancing measures will continue. Even if the economy opens up, a lot of that will remain in place. Businesses have to be prepared for a lot of regulatory pressure from authorities about under what conditions they can open up in order to avoid the spread of the virus. So I think this is really a, a much longer period. Therefore, even the third quarter may still be a fairly weak quarter, and we may not really begin to see a recovery in the economy of any significance until the final quarter of the year. So, Bart, give us a, uh, your assessment on kind of the fiscal stimulus uh, we've seen. We had that $2 trillion bill, and now there's talk of another $2 trillion, perhaps infrastructure bill. Uh, how, how do you expect that to impact the economy? 
Well, it will, of course, help to sort of, um, you know, put a bottom into the decline here. Um, you know, some of this money will go to small businesses who are sort of in immediate need of financial support. Uh, if they don't get that financial support, they will have to close down. Uh, and that would make it much more difficult for them to actually open up again once the recovery starts. So I think we'll see some effects there. It will not necessarily accelerate growth now, but it will help these businesses to be able to, to recover again once we get uh, through this crisis. The other part is the support to uh, unemployment and to income. Uh, again, uh, low-income households will need the money in order just to be able to be pay their basic expenses. Uh, sort of in the medium income level, uh, it's very likely that as long as people can pay their basic expenses and their mortgages and everything else, they will put you know, extra support into savings because they will be prepared for more difficult times to come. Uh, and therefore, some of these effects on the consumption side may be delayed and we will not begin to see anything of that really picking in into the second half of the year. Bart, when we talk about the consumer, it accounts for about two-thirds of the American economy, and there was a survey out from Bankrate that I was looking at this morning showing that more than half of Americans are reducing their consumptions, even online, uh, in, in response to the coronavirus crisis, just to shore up enough capital heading into this period. How big of a recession do you think the U.S. is going to have this year? Oh, well, whatever way we define a recession, this is going to be a recession, whether it is multiple months of contraction or, uh, you know, a level of GDP by the end of the year, uh, which can be, you know, between 5 and 7% lower than what it was at the beginning of the year. So this is a this is a big recession, and it's bigger than what we've seen in 2008 and, and, and 2009. But it's a very kind of unique recession in terms of recent history, because basically what happened here is the economy has been shut down. Uh, that's where we are right now. At the moment, this is primarily a supply shock because, you know, people just can't go anywhere. Uh, but gradually, that supply shock will turn into a demand uh, problem. And that is that once, once we can begin to open up the economy, the real question is how quickly can that consumer come back online? When, uh, when, when, when are they ready to start spending again? Are they allowed to be spending, to be able to go out to the shops and the restaurants and everything else? And how willing are they to spend? Because they're taking a big hit uh, at the moment. And they are being told that if they're not careful, you may have a resurgence of cases later in the year. So I think people will be cautious uh, in order to, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to, to start spending again. And yeah. I think, therefore, again, the recovery will be a, a difficult recovery and a slow one. Bart Van Ark, thank you so much for being with us. Bart Van Ark, sure. Chief Economist at the Conference Board. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Julian Lee. He covers all things oil for Bloomberg Opinion. Julian, Julian, thanks so much for joining us. We've seen this incredible decline in crude. We've got you know WTI crude about $21 a barrel right now. I know it's supply. I know it's demand. Give us a sense of how much of each is really driving oil down here. I think at the moment it's, it's mostly demand. Um, you know, we've had the Saudis and the Russians threatening to open the taps, and we're starting to see some of that oil perhaps beginning to move, um, particularly out of Saudi Arabia. They seem to have boosted shipments to storage tanks that they lease in the Mediterranean. Um, we're seeing a, a, a little bit of an increase in shipments going towards the United States, but none of that oil has arrived yet. Um, what we're really seeing, at the moment at least, is a response to a, a, a collapse in demand. Um, you know, there are estimates that demand this week is down 
by about 26% globally. Uh, that's as if the entire United States, Canada, Mexico, all of Central America and all of the Caribbean stopped using any oil at all. Well, that's kind of what it feels like. I mean, you look up and there are no airplanes in the sky and you look out in the street here and there are no cars going by except for yep. uh, except for the horrible wail of ambulances, which uh, we've been hearing as people uh, are, are suffering throughout the city. I'm just trying to understand how much pain has been priced in, given the fact that we're running out of storage and that Saudi Arabia seems to have no intention of stopping with the production. I think um, I, obviously a lot has been priced in. I mean, as you, you said, we're seeing you know WTI down uh, around twenty bucks a barrel. Um, but some of the inland crudes that are finding it difficult to uh, access storage space are are even now trading in single digits. Um, so they're they're a lot below the the international benchmarks. Um, and you know, we're as you say, we're not seeing any end to the pressure. We're not seeing any significant uptick in, in road traffic. Um, we're not seeing any of the airlines starting to talk about uh, getting some of their fleet flying again. In fact, some of the, you know, the biggest low-cost carriers in, in Europe have grounded their entire fleets in the last couple of days. So we're really not yet seeing any pickup in demand, and we still have this, this wave of additional oil that has been promised or threatened um, making its way towards consumers who don't want it. So, Julian, we had President Trump uh, speak with uh, Mr. Putin uh, yesterday. Any sense of what they talked about or whether there can be any movement there on the part of Russia? Um, I, I haven't got any detailed sense of what they talked about. I mean, we, we're hearing that they talked about energy and they talked about uh, the virus and, and responding to it. Um, my own take on it is that nobody is going to act unilaterally. Russia isn't going to do anything um, if it doesn't see other people um, sort of playing their part. And I, I think those other people include the United States. Um, Saudi Arabia and Russia both see that their actions over the last four or five years have helped to spur a doubling of U.S. oil production. And, and quite frankly, I think their view is that this is too big um, for anybody to deal with on their own. We're all in this together. Um, if we're going to cut back, we're all going to cut back. And, and that has to include American oil producers too. Julian, if we could take a step back and talk about what happens when this period of time is over, do you foresee the destruction in demand being something with permanent ramifications, people going to other sources of energy or changing their habits? Or do you think that once things get back on track, the economies globally start recovering, we're going to see oil bounce back up $45, $50 a barrel, maybe even $60 a barrel? I certainly think we're, we're going to see a, a recovery. Um, whether it's a complete recovery, I, I think, is, is too early to tell yet. But I, I think that if this is a relatively short-term disruption and if, if things are um, picking back up um, off, the, off the floor by you know, even the autumn or, or the end of this year, uh, I don't think that's long enough for people to have fundamentally changed their habits. People are going to go back to driving. They're probably going to go back to flying to the extent that, that restrictions allow them to do so. Um, I think it takes a, a long-term 
disruption for people to really change their habits. I, I don't know of anyone at the moment who's saying, oh, I'll, I'll never fly again or I'll never travel overseas again. So I think things will come back. What the industry is going to look like when that happens and the ability to meet that rising demand, I think, is going to be another question. Julian Lee, thank you so much for being with us. Julian Lee, Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering all things oil-related. It was the worst month for U.S. equities, frankly, for global equities since 2008. Europe fared even worse. Emerging market bonds had their worst month, worst quarter since 1998. Mm. The superlatives continue. And as an investor, there's a question, do you buy the dip, as so many have been conditioned to do over the past decade? Or is this time different as the entire economic landscape has profoundly shifted? Scott Clemens is chief investment strategist at Brown Brothers Harriman, joining us from Pittsburgh. Scott, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start there. How much do you think it is time to buy the dip and how much are we still reeling from an economic shock that we cannot get our arms around and may not be fully priced in? Good morning, Lisa. I think the economic shock has been so quick and the markets have certainly reflected that that just in the past week or so, investors are beginning to sort of gather their thoughts about this. I'm not sure if we formed a bottom last week or not. You're never sure until well after the fact. I would say for investors focused on the long term, this kind of market disruption does provide a good opportunity. may not be the best. doesn't mean the market won't move lower, but it does provide a good opportunity to raise your allocation to equities. So, Scott, it's, give us a sense here. We've seen the, the Federal Reserve uh, act really, I, I think, pretty admirably here. Quickly, they were out in front, one could argue you know, using a lot of the tools in their toolbox. Give us a sense of what the Fed has done from your perspective. Well, Paul, they've thrown the entire 2008 playbook at the markets. The difference is they've done it in about three weeks, whereas in 2008 it took them three or four months to do it. If you look back at where Fed policy was on the first day of March of the year 2020, (laughs) 31 days ago, it is astonishing how much uh, that they have done. And, and I think it's working. I think we can give them credit. The kind of volatility and spread widening that we saw in fixed income markets, even in the highest quality, shortest duration fixed income markets, five or six days ago has begun to wash out. I think it's a good sign that the Fed last week did, when we use the word only, $115 billion of repurchased operations. That's down from half a trillion in each of the two previous weeks. doesn't mean we're out of the woods yet, but Fed policy is working to help financial markets function more effectively. All right, so let's talk about how people are investing. We have seen a rush of cash, which has been uh, basically preserved or uh, hoarded, we should say, over the past few weeks. Cash flooding into the investment-grade corporate bond market as the Fed backstops those securities. I'm just wondering whether you're joining that and you're recommending people boost their allocations to that area? Uh, slowly. I, I don't think that it's time to back up the proverbial truck because, as, as you've continually reported on, there's probably more bad news to come, both on the economic front and on the healthcare front as well. So we are guiding our clients at Brown Brothers Harriman to take advantage on a slow basis if there is money that they are willing to put into the markets or rebalancing that should be done back to an asset allocation policy to do so over time. And, and, and by over time, I mean several months or maybe several quarters as well. This is a crisis that's still in the, uh, the very early days. We are finding opportunities uh, throughout equity markets. 
I would say in fixed income, it's probably more in non-investment grade or distressed debt where investors should tread carefully, but those where the real opportunities will begin to arise. You just reported on Carnival's bond offering. That may be an example of that kind of opportunity. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on one second. I'm not going to let you get away with that. In other words, <laughs> you're saying buying Carnival three-year bonds with a coupon of 125 to 13%, you're all in? No, I'm not all saying that. I'm saying that, that is an example <laughs> okay. of the kinds of opportunities that <laughs> we're right. going to see a lot more of that come. Taking advantage of that for careful and cautious and patient investors is probably a good idea. Carnival's just the earliest example of that kind of trend. So, uh, Scott, so a lot of people here are trying to sense, you know, over the last several days, has the market bottomed? Did we see that last week? Or is it forming a bottom? Or is it typical of just a, a little bounce in what is an, a longer-term bear market. How do you think about that historically? I go back and look at our experience in 2008, and and I know that there are a lot of differences. There always are differences in the particulars, but the common theme is human emotion and the battle between fear and greed, and that's playing out again. Recall in 2008 that a lot of the Fed policy and fiscal policy was in place by early October of that year. The market responded. There were in October and early November two separate 20% rallies in the market, only for the market to bottom out at a lower level than a lower level before ultimately finding a bottom in March of 2009. So it is not uncommon to have these kind of relief rallies within a longer-term bear market. So we're cautioning investors not to get too carried away with the rally that we've had over the past couple of days. Scott, if you just take a look at the balance of the calls and the emotion that you get from investors that you deal with from clients, is the balance more heavily weighted to fear or is it more heavily weighted to greed or at least the sense of buying the dip always has worked? We have a dip. Let's get out there and buy. You know, by, it depends on what you mean by work. The longer term your investment time horizon is, the easier it is to say, yes, this is a time to put money in the market. So we went back and looked at the, the hypothetical unluckiest investor ever. What if you had allocated capital to the markets at the peak of the dot-com bubble? What if you had bought into equity markets the day before Lehman Brothers declared bankruptcy? Charlie Brown levels of unlucky investing timing. <laughs> and yet, with both of those time frames, 10 or 15 years down the road, with a bad entry point, investors had still doubled or tripled their money. So the answer to whether or not this is a time to get into the markets or not depends on the individual investor's temperament and time horizon more than it does on calling a bottom in the market itself. Scott Clements, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, that, Scott Clements, uh, Chief Investment Strategist for Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, yeah. giving us his thoughts on the market. And interesting headline just crossing the, the, the Bloomberg, uh, Lisa, President Trump calls for $2 trillion infrastructure package in the next relief bill. Yeah, this sort of is interesting. It's call, It comes after Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker, was reportedly in talks to get together a second round of a fiscal bailout in the near future. President Trump, it seems like, is weighing in, trying to push that more into the infrastructure realm. Both are not mutually exclusive, right? But it does raise a question about whether we're going to get some sort of, you know, WPA or CCC or, you know, targeting back to the 1930s and some of the public works programs that stemmed from that period of time. Are we going to see a redux of this? And is this going to give fire to some of the infrastructure proposals that were out there well before anything about COVID-19 was on the scene, Paul? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a, you know, prompted discussion of how much uh, capital, how much cash should be put in the hands of consumers, particularly those that have been, that have lost their jobs versus uh, how much uh, aid should be given to companies versus uh, how much should be potentially put in for infrastructure. Well, so that'll likely ignite and- that debate. And also, how much does the economy need to be stimulated after the bailout? Key question. Exactly right. Exactly right. So looking at the markets here, we have a little bit of green on the screen, uh, a little bit of stability, Lisa. I think we'll call it that right here. But uh, markets are up just slightly here. Uh, We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. If you listen really closely, you can hear the helicopters hovering above you, ready to drop some cash. That is sort of the feeling out there as the U.S. government passes one stimulus effort or bailout effort, if you want to call it that, uh, that will deliver checks to Americans. Already in the works is yet another one. And the question that I have been having persistently is, is this inflationary or deflationary? Ira Jersey has a very strong view on this, chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. And I want to continue the conversation because a lot of people are struggling here, thinking that normally when you print money, that is inflationary. Why is the bond market saying the exact opposite? Yeah, I think for two reasons. I think one is that the, you know, quote unquote, helicopter money that you just mentioned is really just replacing income and revenues that are going to be lost by a lot of businesses uh, globally, because the way that money gets into the economy is the Federal Reserve creates base money, right, or any central bank creates what's called base money, and then banks go out and then lend money to other people, to their to their customers, and that's how money flows into the system. In an environment like this, you're not creating um, uh, a lot of new money and a lot of loans that are going to be used to expand businesses. These are just going to be used to keep businesses afloat. So it's not necessarily uh, inflationary where you're going to see hyperinflation, but it's designed in many ways to reduce the worst case deflation scenarios. And and the market's kind of pricing for that because we're not pricing for for, uh, consumer prices to go down a lot uh, for a long period of time. So it's basically we're expecting um, prices to go down very quickly now, but then rebound to you know some level of like one and a half percent a couple of uh, years from now. So Ira, talk to us a little bit about the liquidity that we're seeing in the marketplace. That was really a concern a couple of weeks ago. Uh, uh, give us a sense of kind of where that is right now. Are the markets functioning? Um, I guess you know uh, you know well at this stage. Well, I would say they, they're functioning better um, okay. than they were certainly last week and the week before, but they're still not to where they were, say, a month ago um, in, in late February when you were able basically to buy or sell a significant amount of risk. One of the reasons for that um, is at this point is actually the opposite problem than we had two weeks ago, which is, um, you know, two weeks ago, basically uh, bank balance sheets, banks were and dealers were unwilling to take a lot of risk onto their books one way or the other, whether they were short rates or long rates. Now with the Federal Reserve purchasing, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of treasury securities from the dealers every week, um, dealers are not left with a lot of securities on their balance sheet. So uh, you've actually seen a couple of uh, auctions that were undersubscribed. So basically, dealers didn't even uh, offer enough bonds into these auctions for the Fed to buy all of them. So um, you're in an environment now where um, there's actually uh, it's much easier to sell bonds for sure because the Fed's buying uh, almost every bond that they can find. Um, but at the same time, it's uh, it, it's not normal market function. 
Yeah, it's not normal market function when you see the Fed's balance sheet spike upwards. It's now about five and a quarter trillion dollars. Uh, that deleveraging period, the shrinking of the balance sheet happened for about two minutes there. I'm just wondering, uh, Ira, we talked about this last time, given the renewed uh, assumptions and the expectations around the fiscal rescue uh, efforts and beyond, how big is the central bank's balance sheet going to get eventually in this year or in the near future? Yeah, so so the Fed's balance sheet, you know, our, our expectation is for it to basically double this year from where it was a couple of weeks ago, and then um, you know, well more than double um, uh, over the next couple of years. And a big reason for that, though, um, and we have to revise that too now because the Fed actually just came out with a new program this morning where it's going to allow um, foreign central banks to repo their treasury bonds. So that's going to expand the balance sheet even further. Um, so it, it's going to get big, right? It's going to be a ten trillion dollar number, easy, um, if not more. Um, the technical—that's technical, Paul. It's going to get is, big. Carry <laughs> on, carry big. on. <laughs> so, so one of the, you know, but but the size of the Fed's balance sheet, even though it's going to be really large, it's going to be very variable, and and a lot of the programs that they're designing now are naturally going to go away. So it's likely, you know, that we'll we might spike the Fed's balance sheet over the next year or so to you know ten, eleven, twelve trillion dollars, but then it might naturally come back down to, to seven or eight billion dollars just because um, they're going to own all these treasuries and probably hold them for a long period of time and probably forever, quite frankly. But some of these other programs like the repo programs and, and the like, those will naturally shrink as the economy improves, hopefully, you know, come 2021, 2022. So, Ira, what's next for the Federal Reserve? Do they have any tools left in their toolbox? Well, they have a lot of little tools, certainly for funding. I, I think, you know, basically implementing the programs that have already been announced, I think, is has to be the next thing. Remember, we haven't most of the programs that were announced last week have not yet been implemented. So things like the commercial paper funding program, that's not going to be uh, probably started till next week or the week after you have the corporate bond buying program. And importantly, and I think this is the, the single biggest one for the overall health of the economy is that Main Street funding facility. So the small and medium sized enterprise facility run between the Treasury, the Small Business Administration, and funded by the Fed, that program has to get going and has to get going quickly if we're going to see a, uh, a V-shaped kind of recovery over the next year. If not, then it's going to be much more of a U, uh, in my opinion. Ira Jersey, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts here. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.